Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's six-ish on Sunday night. Welcome to the Sharon Hour with Sharon James. That's me on Laguna's one and only KX93.5. Tonight, my show is on lying. How we all do it. We usually shouldn't, but maybe sometimes we should. You're going to hear a story about how a lie helped, at least temporarily. Unfortunately, lies are usually only temporary fixes. But we don't always just lie to save ourselves. We sometimes lie to save others. And sometimes we lie to ourselves about ourselves. And sometimes we lie to ourselves about others. And how to spot a liar. All this on tonight's Sharon Hour, which you can also listen to live on our website, kx935.com, or download for posterity on kx935.com slash podcast slash the Sharon Hour. That's spelt sharing without the G. And it's what I aim to do on this show. I'm going to start with this premise from a TED Talk by Pamela Myers. See if you agree with her. Lying is a cooperative act. Think about it. A lie has no power whatsoever by its mere utterance. Its power emerges when someone else agrees to believe the lie. So I know it may sound like tough love, but look, if at some point you got lied to, it's because you agreed to get lied to. Truth number one about lying. Lying's a cooperative act. Now, not all lies are harmful. Sometimes we're willing participants in deception for the sake of social dignity, maybe to keep a secret that should be kept secret, secret. We say, honey, you don't look fat in that, no. Or we say, you know, I just fished that email out of my spam folder, I'm so sorry. But there are times when we are unwilling participants in deception, and that can have dramatic costs for us. Last year saw $997 billion in corporate fraud alone in the United States. That's an eyelash under a trillion dollars. That's 7% of revenues. Deception can cost billions. Think Enron, Madoff, the mortgage crisis, or in the case of double agents and traders like Robert Hansen or Aldrich Ames, lies can betray our country. They can compromise our security. They can undermine democracy. They can cause the deaths of those that defend us. Deception is actually serious business. This con man, Henry Oberlander. He was such an effective con man, British authorities say he could have undermined the entire banking system of the Western world. And you can't find this guy on Google. You can't find him anywhere. He was interviewed once, and he said the following. He said, look, I've got one rule. And this was Henry's rule. He said, look, everyone is willing to give you something. They're ready to give you something for whatever it is they're hungry for. And that's the crux of it. If you don't want to be deceived, you have to know what is it that you're hungry for. And we all kind of hate to admit it. You know, we we kind of wish we were better husbands, better wives, smarter, more powerful, taller, richer, the list goes on. Lying is an attempt to bridge that gap, to connect our wishes and our fantasies about who we wish we were, how we wish we could be, with what we're really like. 
And boy, are we willing to fill in those gaps in our lives with lies. On a given day, studies show that you may be lied to anywhere from 10 to 200 times. Now, granted, many of those are white lies. But in another study, it showed that strangers lied three times within the first 10 minutes of meeting each other. (laughs) Now, when we first hear this data, we recoil. We can't believe how prevalent lying is. We're essentially against lying. But if you look more closely, the plot actually thickens. We lie more to strangers than we lie to coworkers. Extroverts lie more than introverts. Men lie eight times more about themselves than they do other people. Women lie more to protect other people. If you're in an average married couple, you're gonna lie to your spouse in one out of every 10 interactions. Now, you may think that's bad. If you're unmarried, that number drops to three. Lying's complex. It's woven into the fabric of our daily and our business lives. We're deeply ambivalent about the truth. We parse it out on an as-needed basis, sometimes for very, very good reasons, and other times just because we don't understand the gaps in our lives. That's truth number two about lying. We're against lying, but we're covertly for it in ways that our society has sanctioned for centuries and centuries and centuries. It's as old as breathing. It's part of our culture. It's part of our history. Think Dante, Shakespeare, news of the world. Lying has evolutionary value to us as a species. The more intelligent the species, the larger the neocortex, the more likely it is to be deceptive. Now, you might remember Coco, Coco the gorilla, who was taught sign language. Coco was taught to communicate via sign language. Coco once blamed her pet kitten for ripping a sink out of the wall. We're hardwired to become leaders of the pack. It starts really, really early. How early? Well, babies will fake a cry, pause, wait to see who's coming, and then go right back to crying. One-year-olds learn concealment. Two-year-olds bluff. Five-year-olds lie outright. They manipulate via flattery. Nine-year-olds, masters of the cover-up. By the time you enter college, you're going to lie to your mom in one out of every five interactions. By the time we enter this work world, and we're breadwinners, we enter a world that is just cluttered with spam, fake digital friends, partisan media, ingenious identity thieves, world-class Ponzi schemers, a deception epidemic. In short, what one author calls a post-truth society. It's been very confusing for a long time now. What do you do? Well, there are steps we can take to navigate our way through the morass. Trained lie spotters get to the truth 90% of the time. The rest of us were only 54% accurate. Why is it so easy to learn? Well, they're good liars and they're bad liars. They're no real original liars. We all make the same mistakes. We all use the same techniques. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you two patterns of deception, and then we're going to look at the hot spots and see if we can find them ourselves. And we're going to do that, learn how to spot a liar, a little later in this Sharon Hour with me, Sharon James, on Lagunas KX93.5 on the topic of lying. But I'm going to segue here to a story about a lie that was told with the best of intentions. We call these white lies because they imply a purity of heart, a desire not to be devious but to protect someone in a loving way. And it's an almost heroic white lie that informs my next speaker, Caroline Casey's childhood, as revealed in another TED Talk. Here's Caroline Casey at the start of her story, talking about who, growing up, she imagined she'd be. I wanted to race cars. I wanted to be a biker chick. And I wanted to be a cowgirl. 
And I wanted to be Mowgli from the Jungle Book because they were all about being free. The wind in your hair. And on my 17th birthday, my parents, knowing how much I love speed, gave me one driving lesson for my 17th birthday. Not that we could have afforded I drive, but to give me the dream of driving. And on my 17th birthday, I accompanied my little sister in complete innocence, as I always had all my life, my visually impaired sister to go to see an eye specialist, because big sisters are always supposed to support their little sisters. And my little sister wanted to be a pilot, God help her. So I used to get my eyes tested just for fun. And on my 17th birthday, after my fake eye exam, the eye specialist just noticed it happened to me on my birthday. And he said, so what are you going to do to celebrate? And I said, I'm going to learn how to drive. And then there was a silence, one of those awful silences when you know something's wrong. And he turned to my mother, and he said, you haven't told her yet. As Janice Ian would say, I learned the truth at 17. I am and have been since birth legally blind. How on earth did I get to 17 and not know that? I got there because at three and a half, just before I was going to school, my parents made a bizarre, unusual, and incredibly brave decision. No special needs schools, no labels, no limitations my ability and my potential. And they decided to tell me that I could see. I would grow up and learn from experience how to be tough and how to survive when they were no longer there to protect me. But more significantly, they gave me the ability to believe, totally to believe, that I could. And so when I heard that eye specialist tell me, everybody imagines I was devastated. And, and don't get me wrong, because when I first heard it, aside from the fact that the whole thing is insane, I got that thump in my chest. Do you know that? <sighs> but very quickly I recovered. It was like that. The first thing I could thought about was my mom, who was crying over beside me. And I swear to God, I walked out of his office. I will drive. I will drive. You're mad. I'll drive. I know I can drive. And with the same dogged determination that my father had bred into me since I was such a child, he taught me how to sail, knowing I could never see where I was going. I could never see the shore, and I couldn't see the sail, and I couldn't see the destination. But he told me to believe and feel the wind in my face. And that wind in my face made me believe that the eye specialist was mad and I would drive. And for the next 11 years, I swore nobody would ever find out that I couldn't see because I didn't want to be a failure and I didn't want to be weak. And I believed I could do it. The small town eyes will gape at you in dull surprise When payment due exceeds accounts received It's 17 
younger than today And dreams were all they gave for free To ugly duckling girls like me We all play the game When we dare to cheat ourselves It's all a tear Inventing lovers on the phone Repenting other lives unknown And ugly girls like me at 17 Caroline was no ugly girl, but she was a challenged one. Still, it wasn't going to stop her. You're tuned to the Sharon Hour on Lagunas KX 93.5. I'm Sharon James playing you the story of Caroline Casey discovering she was legally blind at the advanced age of 17. Her parents had kept the truth from her, and so had her own indomitable spirit. I rammed through life as only a Casey can do, and I was an archaeologist, and then I broke things, and then I managed a restaurant, and then I slipped and things, and then I was a masseuse, and then I was a landscape gardener, and then I went to business school, and, you know, disabled people are hugely educated, and then I went in, and I got a global consulting job with Accenture, and not they, they didn't even know, and it's extraordinary how far belief can take you. In 1999, something happened. My eyes decided, enough. And I'm in one of the most competitive environments in the world where you work hard, play hard, you gotta be the best, you gotta be the best. And two years in, I really could see very little. And I found myself in front of a HR manager in 1999, saying something I never imagined that I would say. I was 28 years old, I had built a persona all around what I could and couldn't do. And I simply said, I'm sorry, I can't see, and I need help. Asking for help can be incredibly difficult. You don't need to have a disability to know that. We all know how hard it is to admit weakness and failure, and it's frightening, isn't it? But all that belief had fueled me so long, and can I tell you, operating in a sighted world when you can't see, it's kind of difficult. It really is. Can I tell you, airports are a disaster. Oh, for the love of God. Oh, and please, any designers out there, you know, I always end up in the gents' toilets. Can I just tell you, the little sign for a gents' toilet or a ladies' toilet is determined by a triangle. Have you ever tried to see that if you had Vaseline in front of your eyes? It's such a small thing, right? And you know how exhausting it can be to try to be perfect when you're not, or to be somebody that you aren't? And so after admitting I couldn't see to HR, they sent me off to an eye specialist. And I had no idea that this man was going to change my life. But before I got to him, I was so lost. No idea who I was anymore. And that eye specialist, he didn't bother testing my eyes. God, no. It was therapy. And he asked me several questions, of which many were, why? Why are you fighting so hard not to be yourself? And do you love what you do, Caroline? And you know when you go to a global consulting firm, they put a chip in your head, and you're like, I love Accenture, I love Accenture, I love my job, I love Accenture, I love Accenture, I love Accenture, I love my job, I love Accenture. To leave would be failure. And he said, do you love it? I couldn't even speak, I was so choked up. I just was so, how do I tell him? And then he said to me, what do you want to be when you were little? Now, listen, I wasn't going to say to him, well, I wanted to race cars and motorbikes. Hardly appropriate at this moment in time. He thought I was mad enough anyway. And as I left his office, he called me back and he said, I think it's time. I think it's time 
to stop fighting and do something different. And that door closed. And the silence just outside a doctor's office that many of us know, chest ached. And I had no idea where I was going. I had no idea, but I did know the game was up. And I went home, and because the pain in my chest ached so much, I thought, oh, God, will I go out for a run? Really not a very sensible thing to do. You know, and I went on a run that I know so well. You know, I know this run so well by the back of my hand. I always run it perfectly fine. I count the steps and the lampposts and all those things that visually impaired people have a tendency to have a lot of meetings with. And there was a rock that I've always missed, and I've, I've never fallen on it, never. And there I was, crying away, and smash bash on my rock. Broken, fallen, over. And I was floored, and I was broken, and I was angry. And I didn't know what to do, because who am I going to be? What am I going to be? And I kept thinking over over my mind, what had happened? Where did it go wrong? Why didn't I understand? And you know, the extraordinary part of it is, I just simply had no answers. I had lost my belief. Look where my belief had brought me to, and now I had lost it, and now I really couldn't see. I was crumpled. Welcome to the planet. Welcome to existence. Everyone's here. Everyone's here. Everybody's watching you now. Everybody.
You're listening to the story of Caroline Casey, first told at a TED Talk, brought to you tonight by me, Sharon James, on the Sharon Hour on Lagunas KX 93.5. Caroline Casey grew up with a condition called ocular albinism, which means she was legally blind. Yet it was a condition she didn't even know she had because her parents lied, if you will, about it, or at least failed to reveal the truth, which helped her get through childhood, in fact. But then, of course, there's always a day of reckoning when it comes to lying. And when the realisation came, it hit Caroline with a mighty force. Who was she to be now that she knew what she fundamentally was? I remember thinking about that eye specialist asking me, what do you want to be? What do you want to be when you're little? Do you love what you do? Do something different. And really slowly, 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 it happened. And it did happen this way. The minute it came... It blew up in my head and bashed in my heart something different. Well, how about Mowgli from the Jungle Book? You don't get more different than that. And the moment that hit me, I swear to God, it was like, woohoo, you know? Something to believe in. And nobody can tell me no. Yes, you can say I can't be an archaeologist, but you can't tell me no, I can't be Mowgli, because guess what? Nobody ever has done it before. So I'm going to go do it. So I got off that rock, and oh my God, did I run home. And I sprinted home, and I didn't fall, and I didn't crash, and I ran up the stairs. And there's one of my favorite books of all time, Travels on My Elephant by Mark Shandon. And I grabbed this book off, and I'm sitting on the couch, and I'm going, I know what I'm going to do. I know how to be Mowgli. I'm going to go across India on the back of an elephant. I'm going to be an elephant handler. Now, while you create a disturbance, I'll rescue Mowgli. Got that? I'm gone, man. Solid gone. Get mad, baby. I want to be like you. I want to walk like you. Talk like you. You see it's you. Someone like me. Can learn to be like someone like me. Take me home, daddy. Can learn to be like someone like you. One more time. Yeah, can learn to be like someone like I had no idea how I was going to be an elephant handler, from global management consultant to elephant handler. I had no idea how. I had no idea how you hire an elephant, get an elephant. I didn't speak Hindi. I've never been to India. I had a clue, but I knew I would. Because when you make a decision at the right time in the right place, God, that universe makes it happen for you. Nine months later, after that day on Snot Rock. I had the only blind date in my life with a seven and a half foot elephant called Kanchi. And together we would trek a thousand kilometers across India. The most powerful thing of all is it's not that I didn't achieve before then. Oh my God, I did. But you know what? I was believing in the wrong thing because I wasn't believing in me, really me, all the bits of me. 
all the bits of all of us. Do you know how much of us all pretend to be somebody we're not? And when you really believe in yourself and everything about you, it's extraordinary what happens. And that trip, that 1,000 kilometers, it raised enough money for 6,000 cataract eye operations. 6,000 people got to see because of that. When it came home off that elephant, the most amazing part was I jacked in my job in Accenture. I left and I became a social entrepreneur and I set up an organization with Mark Shand called Elephant Family, which deals with Asian elephant conservation. And I set up Kanchi because my organization was always going to be named after my elephant, because disability is like the elephant in the room. And I wanted to make you see it in a positive way. No charity, no pity, but I wanted to work only and truly with business and media leadership to totally reframe disability in a way that was exciting and possible. That's what I wanted to do. And I never thought about nose anymore or not seeing or any of that kind of mad thing. And so here I am. This is me. All of me, and I have learned that cars and motorbikes and, and elephants, that's not freedom. Being absolutely, truly yourself is freedom. And I never needed eyes to see, never. I simply needed vision and belief. Seeing the truth about ourselves, not the fiction, is our ultimate aim, right? Self-actualization, the top rung in the hierarchy of our needs. You're tuned to the Sharon Hour on Lagunas KX 93.5. I'm Sharon James, and tonight I'm exploring lying, deception. We lie about ourselves to others. We lie about others to ourselves. We have a perception about somebody, and that becomes our truth, and it's nothing to do with who they are or what they might have done or not have done. Remember those games we used to play where you would write something on a slip of paper, some fact or little snippet of story, and pass it around? And by the time it left the first person and got to the last person, the story had radically changed because a little element got left out here or got misinterpreted there. Well, these lies, if you will, misunderstandings or misinterpretations happen all the time in real life where a story about somebody gets passed around and becomes a truth, when it isn't the truth at all, or it's certainly not the entire truth. And it's not that it's an intentional lie, it's just that the facts got somehow transcribed, and the untruth got believed, and the truth passed over. This happens, unfortunately, all the time in our criminal justice system, but that's a whole other program that I will do at some point. This story you're going to hear next is an interesting tale, a sad one too, that started off as a bit of a joke, despite the darkness of the facts, which involved a young Japanese girl dressed in a miniskirt who was found face deep in snow in North Dakota, having died of exposure, and the story that had circulated about her was that she had gone to Fargo looking for buried treasure, because in the movie Fargo, the Steve Buscemi character had buried treasure somewhere along a snowy road, along a fence with a tree, and there was a line somewhere in the movie that said this is a true story. So this sort of became a joke, even though it wasn't funny. It involved a girl dressed all in black in a miniskirt, heading all the way from Japan to this desolate part of America to find buried treasure based on her misunderstanding that this was fact, not fiction. The true story emerged gradually, and like all true stories about real people, 
and this applies to all my favorite stories about people. There were lots of twists and turns and backstories that had been overlooked before a real truth about that person was pieced together. So here we have this Japanese girl. She doesn't speak any English. She has arrived in America and is trying to explain to someone without any facility for the language where she needs to be and why. This story, by the way, about a Japanese girl called Takako Kunishi has been reported in various media, including This American Life and various newspaper articles, and a recent film called This is a True Story from the documentarian Paul Burscheller, from whom you're going to hear on this Sherina with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's one and only KX93.5. The story begins with a body, the body of a Japanese girl in a field outside of Fargo, North Dakota. How did she die, and what was she doing there? The Cone brothers had called Fargo a true story. It wasn't. That was just a joke. The Japanese girl didn't get it, or so it seemed. Her story was just one of those crazy little things you were supposed to laugh at, then turn the page. But I couldn't. So I went to Fargo and found a true story that was altogether more ordinary than I expected. Easier to understand, but harder to forget. She was first seen wandering around a truck stop on the outskirts of Bismarck, North Dakota, a few hundred miles away from Fargo. A long-haul trucker stopped to see if she needed any help. He dropped her off at the police station and drove off without leaving his name. Seeing her sitting there and I went over and first thing I noticed right away was, you know, it was, the weather was cold outside and she, this girl was not dressed for North Dakota winter. She had a very short skirt on, high boots. I assumed that she had probably been a stripper or something just by the way she was dressed. Girls in North Dakota dress differently probably because of the cold weather. So I went over and tried talking to her, and of course she didn't speak English and I didn't speak Japanese, trying to find out where she wanted to go. The girl pulled out a map drawn with her own hand. She kept pointing at it, saying something he couldn't understand. She had a piece of paper that had a drawing on it of a road and then a tree, hand drawn on there, nothing else. And that's where she wanted to go. North Dakota, pretty much anywhere you look, there's a road and a tree. That's how North Dakota is. Officer Jesse Hellman needed a Japanese translator. He decided to call on some local takeaways for assistance. Unfortunately, the boss of the Golden Dragon was Chinese. Over at the fortune cookie, they were Chinese, too. The China Garden was closed. Jesse reviewed his police work there had to be an explanation. What happened next is how the whole misunderstanding started. After I'd gotten off the phone, other officers said, she's looking for some money. Through trying to make conversation with her, she had said Fargo, the movie Fargo. I actually have never seen the movie Fargo, but another officer that was in the station said that in the movie there was some money that was buried, apparently by a tree on this road. Then we start thinking that maybe she had a false impression of the movie, thinking that somewhere along a road by a tree there was a bunch of money buried. She 
flew all the way here from Japan looking for this money. You know, there is no money. And it, he goes, I tried telling her there's no money. I guess we just didn't know how we could help her, what we could do for her. She was not under arrest. We can't hold her for anything. I told her I could take her to the bus station. She agreed with that. She wanted to go to Fargo. On the way to the bus station, I was trying to make small talk. She had grabbed with both hands. She had grabbed her stomach and pointed to it and said something Japanese. I had asked her, are you sick? And she said something that sounded like cancer to me. So I said, you have cancer? And she said, yes, cancer. And she pointed to her stomach. And I'd asked her, how long? And she said something like six months. I don't know if she had had cancer for six months or if she had six months to live. I didn't know how to take that. And I didn't want to ask her any more questions about it because I felt bad for her. I'm not sure what I thought was going to happen to her. I did my best, but I, I still didn't feel good about it. I didn't know what else I could do. I, I felt really bad because I didn't think I helped her at all, but I didn't know what else I could do to help her. I'm going to button here to mention that you're tuned to The Sharon Hour with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX93.5. And to mention that I created this Sharon Hour to share everything interesting I came across with you, the listener. Every now and then friends say, oh, I have somebody who's interesting for you to do a story on. And they are interesting. What they do is interesting. But what they do only really resonates with people who are interested in that exact same thing. What really gets to me and piques my interest is what the backstory is. Because then we have a story that could be completely different to the stories of our lives, but in which we can find an underlying practical application or emotional application that does have a correlation in our lives. And those are the stories I find stick with us and teach us more about the world and our own behavior and how to tweak it maybe so that we don't miss these opportunities in the future to help ourselves or to help others. As for the story I'm telling you right now, a film was made of it called This is a True Story about this Japanese girl, Takako Kunishi. And there are so many different truths in this story that you realize there is no singular truth in anyone's story. No true story for everyone involved. It's all about perception. There's the classic film Rashomon, which shows one incident from several people's points of view. And of course, the story is different depending on the perspective of the individual recounting it and remembering it. This story has so many different loops and turns to it. It's about misunderstanding for almost all the characters involved story of a Japanese girl who apparently watched the film Fargo, where Steve Buscemi buries treasure, buries it along a fence near a tree by the road. And ostensibly this story is about a Japanese girl who took that film literally, left Japan, went to Fargo to find this buried treasure that appeared in the film Fargo, based on a line in Fargo that said, this is a true story which of course it wasn't. That was part of the fiction of the whole film and characteristic of the Coen brothers' sense of humour. Anyway, she arrives in North Dakota. A truck driver drops her off at a police station so that she can show them the map she's showed him about where she needs to go, figuring they can maybe help her in a way he couldn't. The truck driver was a little concerned for this woman. She didn't speak any English. 
It was his choice to drop her off at the police station so that they could take care of her, or at least see if her story was legitimate. Anyway, that's where she landed. From there, she checked herself into a budget motel just outside Fargo, and that's where I'll pick the story up again on this Sharon Hour on Laguna's KX 93.5. Here's the guy at the motel's reception desk. The first time I saw her, just working my usual shift at the desk, and uh, this rather attractive young Japanese girl came up. Well, I thought she was a very attractive young lady. I was happy to help her. It's nice when you can help an attractive young woman. I think she was a, a little lonely. I don't think she was very happy. Looked like she was tired. People aren't generally at their happiest when I see them on my shift. He says he caught her eye. Steve, the owner of the motel bar, wanted to tell me a story about her. She came in. She had a map in front of her of North Dakota. She asked me if there was a good place to watch the stars and she wanted me to watch the stars with her and watch a movie with her and she wanted to have a drink with me after work and I said well actually I have a girlfriend who I love sorry you know that's just not an option Takako left Fargo in the morning left without showing anyone her treasure map without looking for the briefcase full of cash maybe she wasn't in Fargo because of the movie at all the hotel records showed that she had made a long-distance call from her room 40 minutes to a phone number in Singapore. It was the last call she ever made. Later I discovered that Takako once had an American boyfriend in Tokyo and that he had left there for a job in Singapore. Did her journey to Fargo have something to do with him and not the movie? Whatever the reason, the next day she would be dead. She was on the road out of Fargo, on her way to a small town, Detroit Lakes, just over the Minnesota border. Night clerk had said it was a perfect place to watch the stars. I did not ask her what she was doing in the States. I've driven a taxi for 14 years, and I have found that a customer can come right out and tell me I don't feel like talking. Just drive. They arrived in the frozen resort town. She wanted to be let out on the far side of the lake. There are very few homes there. There are no hotels, there are no motels. Some people may be afraid of dogs or wild animals. This didn't seem to concern her at all. A few hours later, she was sighted by a housewife named Deb Kruger. She lived on Dead Shot Circle at the edge of the forest. I first saw her when I was going out to my burning barrel to burn the garbage. I saw a figure down at the end of the road and then I saw her going up towards the hill, kind of running. I was startled by her because I'm not used to seeing anyone usually on the hill. And it was right close to Halloween time. So I came in the house and I said to my kids, You guys, you guys, there's a witch on the hill. So to calm them, I said, well, we just rebuke any influence of a witch and we ask Jesus' protection. The last people to see her alive were two friends, Scott and Jeff, who work for J&K Marine. We're driving and he popped her out of the down. corner of like, your eye. He goes, there's some dude running in his underwear down the hill. I go, what? And I look back. I go, no, that's a, I go, that's a chick. You know, and I go, we should stop and, you know, see what she wants maybe. And then I was like, no, nah, let's go. And Scott, he stopped. Yeah. yeah. We tried to make conversation with her. We asked her what, what she was doing, but it was a really choppy accent. It was hard to understand, so. It wasn't English. So we kept trying to ask her where she needed to go. And... No, we thought she worked at 
Chinese dragon. Jeff asked her if she was a waitress, and she said, yeah, how you know? All of a sudden, she's like, you know, right here, you know, stop, stop. And she knew how to say stop. Didn't she say stop? I can't remember. I don't know. They knew nothing about her at first, not even her name. Just that she was there, an oriental girl, dead in the forest, out by the Marty Salmon place. The investigation couldn't start until daybreak. A policewoman watched over the body all night. Well, it was treated as a potential homicide because of the fact that she's a young woman and was found by herself in a remote area. And there was some evidence that there perhaps might have been another person there. Well, this location, as the crow flies, is uh, probably a mile and a half, two miles off of a very major thoroughfare, uh, U.S. Highway 10. It would not be unusual uh, in a homicide for the body to be dumped someplace down the road and very close to a major thoroughfare like that. We found no evidence of trauma. And once we undressed her, I did various things to determine if she'd been sexually assaulted or if she'd been harmed in any way, and there was no evidence of that to be sure that, that this wasn't a homicide. You know, that was very uh, real possibility for this to have been a death due to exposure. She wasn't dressed for that type of weather, and so we really had to consider that possibility too. We ended up finding a number of substances in her bloodstream, but none of them appeared to be um, lethal. The police had some concerns about stomach cancer because of a conversation with her. I looked for stomach cancer during the autopsy and found no evidence of stomach cancer. So Takako didn't have stomach cancer. Either she lied to Jesse for some reason, or he got it wrong. So why did she die, and why here? The police discovered she had been to the States three times in recent years, landing each time in Minnesota. If the movie didn't bring her here, what did? A reminder here that you're tuned to Laguna's one and only listener-supported, member-supported public FM radio station. That's KX935. This is the Sharon Hour. I'm Sharon James. Tonight's topic is about lies, the stories we tell ourselves, the stories that are told about us, how to unravel lies and recognize liars. That's coming up. But right now I'm recounting a story that made the news all over the world based on an entire fabrication. The true story was something very simple, as this documentarian Paul Bichella ultimately discovered. I traveled back into Takako's life, back to where her story began. Where else could I go to find out who that real girl really was? I walked through the quiet streets of old Tokyo in Shinjuku district, where she'd once lived. Life went on without her. Of course, she'd left it all behind. Her landlady invited me in for tea. She wanted to understand, too. It seemed that Takako had once been just another normal Japanese girl. Obedient, the landlady remembered fondly. A country girl who had left home for the big city. Made her life there as an office girl for a travel agency. She seemed happy, and one day the travel agency went bankrupt. She couldn't find another job. Everything changed for her. Her neighbor was a psychology student at the university. He and his friends thought she was pretty, but she just ignored them. He invited me into the flat where she used to live. He lived there now. He said that she kept away from the light, 
showed me how she always covered her window with cardboard during the day. She went to work at midnight. Through the thin walls, he would hear her return home every morning at dawn. A few times he heard yelling, furniture being knocked over, like a fight was going on. But he knew she was there alone. One day the girl turned up at her door, covered in blood. She had lost her keys. She was drunk. She wouldn't say what else had happened. Whenever the landlady saw her after that, she was drunk. One day Takako said that she was going back home to her parents, back to the small town she had once tried to escape forever. A few weeks later, her mother called, asking whether the landlady had seen her. But I thought Takako was back home with you, she said. Takako had left all her belongings behind. The landlady gave everything away, except her music box. She found a tape inside, Takako's favorite song. The landlady listened to it all the time. The song was about a man who left a girl behind. The landlady started to cry. When she first changed, I thought she had a broken heart. She was a young girl. I couldn't ask why. Why didn't I? I should have talked to her a little bit more, the landlady said. I should have asked her. I am regretful. I am so regretful. It seems that Takako couldn't forget him, the American she met in Tokyo. He was a businessman. He was married. He left her and left Tokyo for Singapore. Was that final phone call a last effort to win him back? Her last chance? Another factor that came about later in the investigation was the fact that she had written a letter to her family saying that by the time they got the letter, um, she would be gone. It could have been that she decided to take an overdose of drugs, that she had chosen this place to kill herself, but it also may have been that she had something else in mind. Only she knows what she was thinking at the time. The landlady heard the news a little while later. Takako's mother called back to say her daughter was gone. Gone? She replied that her daughter had died, died far away, in a cold place, by a lake. How strange, an urban legend, that's what she became. The loneliest of deaths transformed into something famous, into mass entertainment. There was that one thing she left behind, a story, but was it true? I know that she'd had some contacts with law enforcement in North Dakota. They were under the impression that she was looking for some money. So for some reason that, that portion of it grew to mythical uh, measures. People from the outside looking in were fascinated. No, I don't know, I haven't seen the movie. But for us, the investigation was pretty straightforward and we had a job to do in spite of what anybody else wanted the story to be. So it was just a series of misunderstandings, something small that somehow led to something big. The whole Fargo treasure story was nothing more than the figment of a well-meaning policeman's imagination, nothing more than a tale that people wanted to believe. The girl who died in urban legend didn't go to Fargo in search of some imaginary treasure from a movie. She went to a place where she had once been happy, perhaps with her American lover. Maybe she always planned to die in that frozen world, or maybe the idea came to her along the way. We'll never know for sure.
I was like everyone else. I wanted to believe in some dreamlike myth about the weirdness, the unrealness of the world we are making for ourselves. If a policeman hadn't mentioned the movie, if it hadn't been a slow news day, you never would have heard about the Japanese girl who died alone in a cold place by a lake. Includes the story of Takako Kanishi, told on this Sharon Hour on Laguna's KX935, about the lie that gripped the world. I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. Thank you. Well, of course, that was really the lie that gripped the world. And as promised on this Sharon Hour with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX93.5, we're going to go back to Pamela Meyer, who is going to give us some tips on how to spot a liar, or not even a pathological liar, how to tell if someone's lying. Here's what she noted watching Clinton's rebuttal of any affair with Monica Lewinsky. Okay, the telltale signs. We're going to start with speech. Well, first we heard what's known as a non-contracted denial. Studies show that people who are overdetermined in their denial will resort to formal rather than informal language. We also heard distancing language, that woman. We know that liars will unconsciously distance themselves from their subject using language as their tool. Now, if Bill Clinton had said, well, they tell you the truth, or Richard Nixon's favorite, in all candor, he would have been a dead giveaway for any lie spotter that knows that qualifying language, as it's called, qualifying language like that, further discredits the subject. Now, if he had repeated the question in its entirety, or if he had peppered his account with a little too much detail, and we're all really glad he didn't do that, he would have further discredited himself. Freud had it right. Freud said, look, there's much more to it than speech. No mortal can keep a secret. If his lips are silent, he chatters with his fingertips. And we all do it, no matter how powerful you are. We all chatter with our fingertips. Now, with body language, here's what you gotta do. You really gotta just throw your assumptions out the door. Let the science temper your knowledge a little bit. Because we think liars fidget all the time. Well, guess what? They're known to freeze their upper bodies when they're lying. We think Liars won't look in the eyes. Well, guess what? They look you in the eyes a little too much just to compensate for that myth. We think warmth and smiles convey honesty, sincerity, but a trained lie spotter can spot a fake smile a mile away. You can consciously contract the muscles in your cheeks, but the real smiles in the eyes, the crow's feet of the eyes, they cannot be consciously contracted especially if you overdid the Botox. Don't overdo the Botox. Nobody will think you're honest. But now we're going to look at the hot spots. Can you tell what's happening in a conversation? Can you start to see the discrepancies between someone's words and someone's actions? Now, I know it seems 
really obvious, but when you're having a conversation with someone that you suspect of deception, attitude is by far the most overlooked but telling of indicators. An honest person is gonna be cooperative. They're gonna show they're on your side. They're gonna be enthusiastic. They're gonna be willing and helpful in getting you to the truth. They're gonna be willing to brainstorm, name suspects, provide details. They're gonna say, hey, maybe it was those guys in payroll that forged those checks. They're gonna be infuriated if they sense they're wrongly accused throughout the entire course of the interview, not just in flashes. They'll be infuriated throughout the entire course of the interview. And if you ask someone honest, what should happen to whoever did forge those checks? An honest person is much more likely to recommend strict rather than lenient punishment. Now let's say you're having that exact same conversation with someone deceptive. That person may be withdrawn, look down, lower their voice, pause, be kind of herky-jerky. Ask a deceptive person to tell their story, they're gonna pepper it with way too much detail in all kinds of irrelevant places. And then they're gonna tell their story in strict chronological order. And what a trained interrogator does is they come in and in very subtle ways, in, over the course of several hours, they will ask that person to tell their story backwards. And then they'll watch them squirm and track which questions produce the highest volume of deceptive tells. Why do they do that? Well, we all do the same thing. We rehearse our words, but we rarely rehearse our gestures. We say yes, we shake our heads no. We tell very convincing stories, we slightly shrug our shoulders. We commit terrible crimes and we smile at the delight in getting away with it. Now that smile is known in the trade as duping delight. And actually you see it with people like OJ in the courtroom and this other murdering mother by the name of Diane Downs who told a harrowing tale of dealing with her children bleeding to death and then smiled in the most hideous way. You can watch it. It's actually on YouTube. You're tuned to The Sharer now with Sharon James. That's me on Laguna's KX93.5. My topic tonight is lying, and Pamela Meyer is telling us how to spot a liar via their speech and facial expressions. Now, there are going to be times when someone makes one expression while masking another that just kind of leaks through in a flash. Murderers are known to leak sadness. Your new joint venture partner might shake your hand, celebrate, go out to dinner with you, and then leak an expression of anger. And we're not all going to become facial expression experts overnight here, but there's one I can teach you that's very dangerous and that's easy to learn, and that's the expression of contempt. Now with anger, you've got two people on an even playing field. It's still somewhat of a healthy relationship, but when anger turns to contempt, you've been dismissed. It's associated with moral superiority, and for that reason, it's very, very hard to recover from. It's marked by one lip corner pulled up and in. It's the only asymmetrical expression, and in the presence of contempt, whether or not deception follows, and it doesn't always follow. Look the other way, go the other direction, reconsider the deal, say, no, thank you, I'm not coming up for just one more nightcap, thank you. Science has surfaced many, many more indicators. We know, for example, we know liars will shift their blink rate, point their feet towards an exit. They will take barrier objects and put them between themselves and the person that's interviewing them. They'll alter their vocal tone, often making their vocal tone much lower. Now, here's the deal. These behaviors are just behaviors. They're not proof of deception. They're red flags, we're human beings. We make deceptive, flailing gestures all over the place all day long. They don't mean anything in and of themselves. But when you see clusters of them, that's your signal. Look, listen, probe, ask some hard questions, get out of that very comfortable mode of knowing, walk into curiosity mode, ask more questions, 
Have a little dignity. Treat the person you're talking to with rapport. Don't try to be like those folks on Law and Order and those other TV shows that pummel their subjects into submission. Don't be too aggressive. It doesn't work. Now, we've talked a little bit about how to talk to someone who's lying and how to spot a lie, what, what the truth looks like. We know, for example, that we now have specialized eye trackers, infrared brain scans, MRIs that can decode the signals that our bodies send out when we're trying to be deceptive. And these technologies are going to be marketed to all of us as panaceas for deceit. And they will prove incredibly useful someday. But you've got to ask yourself, in the meantime, who do you want on your side of the meeting? Someone who's trained in getting to the truth, or some guy who's going to drag a 400-pound electroencephalogram through the door? Lie spotters are armed with scientific knowledge of how to spot deception. They use it to get to the truth, and they do what mature leaders do every day. They have difficult conversations with difficult people, sometimes during very difficult times. Lie spotters rely on human tools. They know, as someone once said, characters who you are in the dark. And what's kind of interesting is that today we have so little darkness. Our world is lit up 24 hours a day. It's transparent with blogs and social networks, broadcasting the buzz of a whole new generation of people that have made a choice to live their lives in public. It's a much more noisy world. So one challenge we have is to remember, oversharing, that's not honesty. Our manic tweeting and texting can blind us to the fact that the subtleties of human decency, character, integrity, that's still what matters. That's always what's going to matter. So in this much noisier world, it might make sense for us to be just a little bit more explicit about our moral code. When you combine the science of recognizing deception with the art of looking, listening, you exempt yourself from collaborating in a lie. You start up that path of being just a little bit more explicit because you signal to everyone around you. You say, hey, my world, our world, it's going to be an honest one. My world is going to be one where truth is strengthened and falsehood is recognized and marginalized. And when you do that, the ground around you starts to shift just a little bit. And that's the truth. And wouldn't that be nice if our leaders and particularly our politicians these days took note of that? Whatever's happened to telling the truth, there doesn't seem to be the right climate for it in today's world. It doesn't seem to be as valued as I personally think it should be. Maybe things have to get really bad before they get better, but I hope we can have a more truthful world with this more transparent one. It's one of the few bonuses of having our private lives so thoroughly exposed to one and all, whether of our volition or not. I'm Sharon James. This has been the Sharon Hour on Laguna's KX935 about lying this week. Next week, I think I'm going to do delusion, which is possibly the cousin to deception, but a different animal. So do tune in again next Sunday night at 6, and do go onto our website. We have a very exciting event coming up at a magnificent Laguna Beach oceanfront estate. Go see what it is on kx935.com. Buy a ticket, become a member, check out all our other shows while you're there, and look forward to being together again on the Sharon Hour on KX935 next Sunday night at 6. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.